If you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. this morning, we do pray, Lord, that we will be encouraged, we will be informed, we will be strengthened, that our hearts will be warmed, that you will grant us a better understanding of you, a better understanding of how our relationship with you and our knowledge of you should affect the way that we think and the way that we feel and the way that we live. We pray that your spirit would help us in applying the truth to our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would use these things to continue to conform us to the image of your Son, Christ. Knowing, Lord, that as this takes place, our joy will increase. Life for us will be better because understanding brings that. And so, Father, we ask that as we open your word today, that you would speak to our hearts through your word. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 29 through 31, Paul writes, again, about uh, the, the difficulties that the Corinthians have been having when it comes to uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper. And he says this, Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Over the last couple of weeks, we saw that there are three basic reasons for those who are experiencing weakness and sickness and death. Number one, we know that there's just original sin. That's, that's the meta-narrative that we've talked about that goes back to the book of Genesis that helps us to understand and explains to us why things go wrong, why we feel bad, why we have health issues, why there is trouble in society. All of that is explained by original sin. But we also know that we are weak and sick and dead because God wants to make himself manifest, make his works manifest to others. And we saw in scripture how uh, there was a man that was born blind. And when the disciples were asking why, why was this man born blind, it wasn't because he had sinned, because uh, they, they did believe you could sin in the womb. It wasn't as punishment because his parents had sinned. Jesus stated that the only reason that man was born blind was so that on that, and I'm paraphrasing, but so on that particular day, Jesus would heal him of his blindness and manifest the works of God. And of course, we know that would authenticate to those who were, who were watching this and seeing this, that Jesus was who he claimed to be. But then we also saw, thirdly, that there are times maybe more often than we think, that these things come upon us because of our own sin. And, and we talked a lot about, uh, two weeks ago, a lot about being weak and sick, the idea of being that we become disgruntled with life, dispassionate about life, uh, we feel down, we don't have energy, uh, we become maybe more and more cynical, bitterness begins to set in, and a lot of those things may be happening because uh, you and I are, are not... Uh, pursuing God as we ought to. We're not living as we ought to live. God is not on our conscience. He's on the back burner. We begin to mistreat other people. We make a mockery 
uh, of the Lord's table and the Lord's people. But what I want to talk to you about this morning is what he says here in verse 31. Because he says, but if we, meaning on the other hand, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So as a believer, is there a way that we can prevent God's chastisement? The answer is yes. I don't know about you, but I don't want God's discipline in my life. Now, we're not moving in the direction that somehow we are going to begin thinking or that the Bible somehow teaches that we're never going to experience bad things in life. Because again, there's many reasons why we will do. There's original sin, uh, which will in its finality be dealt with when the Lord returns. We also know that there are times that we again may experience disease. Uh, There may be early death in our family because God seeks to manifest himself. His work in us, in the, in, for others, so that they will see the glory of God. So we're not saying that this is a way to make sure that nothing bad ever happens to you, because that's, that's not a, a biblical principle. But there is the idea that we can, as his children, avoid discipline and chastisement. What can I do to escape the chastising hand of God? Because I don't want sickness, I don't want weakness, I don't want it because of that anyway. And so he tells us in verse 31, if you judge yourself truly, you would not be judged. That's simple. Basically, in verse 29, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, the word discern there is uh, the word judge that we have in verse 31. The Greek word is the word uh, diakrino, which means to discern or judge, to distinguish properly in our relationship with God and our relationship with others. That's the word, again, as I mentioned, is used here in 31. In other words, we are not going to continue to go around with unconfessed sin. It doesn't mean perfection, but it doesn't mean that, and it doesn't mean that you won't sin next week or even the next hour. But when we have dealt with sin, it, it means that when we sin, we are constantly, thoroughly examining ourselves. And if we do that, we're going to deal with our sin so that God doesn't have to step in and deal with it. Now, for some people, maybe for many, that just sounds like an exhausting way to live life. It just sounds negative. And we we don't want anything added to our life. We feel there's enough stress already. So I I don't want that. Well, I think we're thinking about it in the wrong way. This, this This is not some burdensome thing that God is now adding to us. It's not a task that we need to perform uh, that kind of crowds out all the other things that we have to do. It's, it's to become just a, a, a way of, of thinking, a way of living. Now, this, this illustration is horrible for many reasons. One is because uh, I can identify with it, uh, and it shows easily our failure. Uh, but every now and then, you know, I get a craving for, for ice cream. That's not a good thing. You can talk to my wife because she tells you, she tells me this all the time, that I never eat a normal amount of anything. It's not uncommon. It should be less common. Where I will get a half gallon of Edie's double fudge chocolate brownie ice cream, pop the lid, and get a spoon. Why dirty a bowl? 
I can slowly consume the entire thing. It's not some feat. A lot of you probably could do it as well. When I buy it, when I pop the lid, when I get a spoon, I already know I'm thinking this is bad for me. Even though it tastes wonderful. It's not a burden. It's not taking you away, but it's just, it's constant. Eventually I'm able to drown it out with the next bite of double fudge brownie chocolate ice cream. And it goes away and I ignore it. Many times you have gone to a restaurant. I know men have done this because I've heard them. They'll order, they'll go to Carrie Hilliard's and they'll order the club sandwich and fries. And their wife will say, and not always a loving way, I thought you weren't going to eat fries anymore. And we just say either never mind or leave me alone or, well, tomorrow. So, in other words, we are very rapidly, we've already made this discernment that this is unhealthy. And unfortunately, we've made the discernment we're going to eat it anyway. So we are, in a sense, maybe it's because of all of the commercials and all the fads that are going on. We're always, at least some people are thinking a great deal about food and either its nutritional value or its lack of nutritional value. Thinking of its, the number of calories, or maybe there are times that we don't want to know the number of calories because we want to enjoy it without guilt, that type of thing. So in a, in a way, this is what we're talking about. It's thinking about your life. It's not that you have to stop and make a big deal about everything. The idea is, is that we are thinking the way God wants us to think. We're thinking about the way we treat people and how we relate and how we communicate and what we choose to do, what we choose not to do, and how we even come to those decisions. It just, we incorporate this way of thinking. It's to take the place of the other way we were thinking, which we were always thinking about ourselves and what we wanted and what was good for us and what was bad for us and all those kinds of things. We're just, we're replacing that with this. So we want to make sure that we don't allow the devil, we don't allow our flesh to somehow create this as being a really heavy burden that we have to carry around because the words of Jesus are still true, that his burdens are light and his yoke is easy. We don't, we don't really always believe that. We don't think in those terms. But the idea here is that if we think about our life and we, and we are discerning in how we live, And we deal with our shortcomings. We deal with our weaknesses. We deal with our sin. Then God doesn't need to. He doesn't need to do that. I would rather be in that position. I don't want to be under the heavy hand of God's discernment. Let me read to you again from the Amplified Version, verse 31. And it reads this way. For if we searchingly examined ourselves... Detecting our shortcomings and recognizing our condition. We should not be judged. We should not have a penalty decreed by divine judgment. And so that's what he's talking about. Again, he says, but if we judged ourselves truly or if we judged ourselves rightly, the word judged here is in the imperfect tense. What the imperfect tense means is very similar to the present tense. And as he's speaking to them, what he's saying is now listen. The weak and the sick and the dead wouldn't even be a reality to you because of this personal sin if you had been continuously, which is the imperfect tense, meaning continuously, judging yourself. 
What they were experiencing at that moment of time, they would not be experiencing if they had been doing this. If they had been discerning, if they were thinking about the way they live. That's the way that we are supposed to live every day. Again, if you're trying to live the Christian life in the flesh, this will be a burden. This will be exhausting emotionally in every way. You know, for many of us, hopefully all of us that are married, when, you, when we get married, we instantly change the way we think about life. You automatically, some will have to learn a little bit about this, but we automatically begin to think in terms of us instead of just me. We automatically think in terms of what, that other, what our spouse is thinking or they're going to be included in what we're doing. It's not a burden to do that. It's just automatic. In fact, hopefully you want to do that. We want to live life together. And that requires us to think very differently than when we did when we were single. And so that's kind of the transformation that we're talking about. The most important thing to God, remember, is not our agenda. It's not our ministry. It's not our church. It's not buildings. It's our relationship with him and our relationships to each other. And he wants us to be discerning in that way. When he says we would not be judged, again, that is in the imperfect tense, and it's also in what's called the passive voice, and so it means this. If you will continuously judge yourself, you won't have to be continuously judged, uh, and that's what he's saying. It's a great thing. We don't have to fear the judgment of God. God is a corrective God. God is a loving Father. What father does not correct his children? So God is going to correct us. He would prefer that we come to these, this understanding on our own. That we would grasp the truth of this on our own. He will use whatever severe measure is necessary. And we've seen some really uncomfortable things over the past weeks as we looked at the word of God. Again, that will remind you that when we talk about God's judgment here, we're not talking about eternal judgment. If you and I have believed in Christ and we continue to believe in Christ and trust in Christ, then we don't have to worry about this judgment where we're going to be separated from God. That's not going to happen. Our judgment has already fallen on the Lamb of God. And therefore, it's not going to fall on you. So that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a God who loves his children. In Corinth, the people of God had gotten to the point that they were so dull to who he was and his holiness that finally, he shocked them back to reality. He had to bring fear in their hearts so that the next time they chose to sin in the area of relationships they were sinning, they would back off and they would say no. Kind of like, you know, there are times when our parents had to do this with us, or maybe you had to do it with your child, you kind of had to bring them back to reality. You know, they, they forget, that's kind of the language we use, they forget that they're a minor. They forget that you are their parent. And so we want to bring a corrective, not because we hate them, because we love them. Because there's, there's so much uh, that's, that's important that's packed into those relationships and informing those attitudes. And so again, what we need to remember is that the measure of our consequence to our sin has everything to do with the measure of our choice. But when it comes to this passage and many others like it, when we talk about God's judgment on us, I do think that we need to make, maybe correct the way we think about God. When we think about God, we think of, of a, we, you know, we always say a loving parent. And it seems kind of odd because we keep saying that uh, we talk about God as being a loving parent and then we talk about him disciplining us. 
which is probably the worst aspect of what the loving parent has to do. Because my, I remember my dad, he could be really stern. Of course, the, the sad thing is, is I just always deserved that. It was just horrible. We got to the point that our relationship was so good that my dad didn't always have to speak. He, he had a glare. And he looked at me, and it was really strange, because not only did I already know I was in trouble, I actually really knew why. There was no guessing. You know, I never said to my dad, why are you looking at me that way? That did not come out of my mouth. A, it would make things worse, but, but I already knew what I was guilty of. But I want you to turn to the book of Lamentations. The thoughts I want to share with you now are, uh, there's a book that I've been reading, uh, trying to read it very slowly. It's called Gentle and Lowly. Uh, just so you know, I think that book should be named the 2020 book of the year for Christians. It's, it's difficult to find a book that I think explains adequately and deeply God's love for us that is solid theologically and is not some mushy thing that mimics the world. It's just it's so good in so many ways. So in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 31 through 33, it reads this way. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. There's an implicit premise that's stated here, and that is, it is God is the one who afflicts. So we don't want to ignore that. God will, he is the one who does this, he afflicts us because of our sin. But there's also another implicit statement, and that is, that he does not do it from his heart, or he does not do it willingly. We, we use anthropomorphisms. That's just a fancy way of saying that we attribute to God human language and attributes to help us to comprehend and understand who he is and how he relates to us. And so here it says that, that he doesn't do this willingly. He doesn't do this from his heart. Uh, sometimes in some books this is called divine reluctance. Thomas Goodwin is a Puritan. He says this, God does not from his heart afflict or grieve his children. But when he speaks of showing mercy, he says he does it with his whole heart and his whole soul. So that we're going to be looking at a comparison here between God's showing of mercy to us. Remember that what mercy is, is the withholding of punishment that we deserve. And then also this idea of God uh, afflicting us because of our wrongdoing and, and correcting us to become really like his son Jesus. So turn over to the book of Jeremiah. I'm going to read Jeremiah chapter 32. I'm going to read verse 36 and then verses 40 and 41. Jeremiah chapter 32. And I'll read verse 36 and then 40 through 41. It says, Now therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. 
So we hear how, see here how God communicates to us. So God has this message for Israel. If we know anything about Israel, we know that Israel was perpetually unfaithful to God. Over and over and over again, the prophets have to come in and scold Israel and say, God is going to judge you if you don't turn. And they would continue and they would say, if God's going to judge you if you don't turn. And they would continue and then it was God's going to judge you and it's coming now. And we would see time after time when God would even use ungodly nations to come and take Israel out of the land. Uh, sometimes for, for a very long period of time to correct them. And so with this unfaithful nation, he says, I will not turn away from doing good to them. In fact, he continues really in patience and he says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Why is he going to such lengths? Why doesn't he just say enough of this? It's because God is good. In fact, he says, I'm going to put my fear in their hearts so they won't turn from me. And then he says, I will rejoice in doing them good. And then he says, I will plant them in faithfulness. And he says he will do this with all of his heart and all of his soul. In fact, when it comes to God's justice, when it comes to God's correctiveness in our life, this is a term, there's a term that's used. Turn to Isaiah chapter 28 and look at verse 21. I'm going to read to you first from the King James Version, and then I'm going to show you several other translations, uh, the wording that's used. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21. It says, For the Lord shall rise, rise up as in Mount Perizim. He shall, be, he shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. So he's talking about God's act of justice. And it is identified here as his strange work or his strange act. In the New American Standard, it calls it his unusual task. In the English Standard Version, it's called his strange is his deed and to his work alien is his work. In the Christian Standard, it says it is his strange work and to perform his task, his disturbing task. So when it comes to God showing justice, God correcting us, it's called his strange act. But when it comes to God showing mercy, he rejoices over doing that. He rejoices to do them good with his whole heart and his whole soul. You see, often when we think of God's heart, we actually think of God's heart as being brittle, that he is easily offended, or maybe that he is cold, and uneasily moved. Now, let me just pause for a moment. This is where there's a burden that is placed upon us as men who are fathers. What we need to recognize is that, and I don't know if it's always, but it does seem to be a great deal of time, especially for Christian men. When we raise our children, our children's first understanding about what God is like is based on their understanding of us. Okay, that's a very strong thing. Now, it is going to be corrected by Scripture. Hopefully, there won't be too much of a correction needed. So, if we, if we only scold them when we've had enough, they think of God that way. If we are normally stern, they think of God that way. But also, if we're overly lenient, they think of God that way. 
And so that affects then the way they live their life, the way they make decisions and the way they relate to God. So it's hard. It's hard being a dad. Number one, all of us are going to do it very imperfectly. That's why it's important for us to admit when we're wrong and to show them that we are dependent upon, uh, upon God as well. And even that we do imperfectly. But turn if you would to the book of Isaiah, I mean Isaiah, Hosea, Hosea chapter 11. This verse will help us to see the true heart of God. And again, the reason why we're looking at this is because we're talking about this God that we're going to, we're trying to avoid his discipline, but what is his attitude towards us? That, that, I think that will help to motivate us to live in the way that we ought to live as believers. In the book of Hosea chapter 11, beginning in verse 7, it reads this way. My people are bent, turning away from me. Though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. From this passage, also from the book of Ezekiel chapter 18, Jonathan Edwards says this, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of his people. He would rather they turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways, that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy, and again, judgment is his strange work. Too often we think the opposite. We think mercy is his strange work, and judgment is his natural work. So again, we're not saying that God won't judge. He will. But what it's describing to us is this overwhelming love that God has for us. It's a very real thing. Again, most of us, as we raised our children, how many of us look forward to correcting them? Nobody. How many of us just can't wait until we can discipline our kids? That, that, no one thinks like that. What we want to do is to show them love and kindness and goodness and even mercy. We, we want them to get it so we can be merciful. That's why sometimes we may even become more angry because when they're defiant, you know, when, when they say, don't tease your sister, and they can see that twinkle in your eye that you're about to do it again the moment they walk out of the room. It bothers them. Then they want you to, to, to grasp the truth of that and the importance of that. One more passage for you to turn to. Exodus 34. I'm only going to read two verses. Exodus 34. This is where God describes himself. Verses 6 and 7. Moses is asked to see the glory of God. God says, that's not going to happen. But then he says, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll pass by, and I'll let you see my, my back parts. This is what it says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what is God's glory? When we're talking about God's glory, what are we talking about? We were speaking of, 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 of God uh, who, who, is, who is like what? What would we say? What is he like? Well, we think of his thundering, swinging the gavel of justice, the sword of righteous judgment, retribution towards those who are wayward. But when you read these verses, the first 24 words that God uses to describe himself, the first 24 words are what? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now again, he's not soft, because as a reminder, he will by no means clear the guilty. In fact, he says he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now I came across this and so I, I had to look up some Greek words to make sure that this is correct and, and it is. And that is that some translations, maybe many translations, miss this point. In verse 7, it says, um, hold on. It says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity. And then later on in verse 7 it says, uh, he's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers for the third or fourth generation. So when it says that his love for thousands, that really could be understand, understood as keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations. And when you, and when you look at the word, look at the theological dictionaries, that is correct. So there's this contrast here. The contrast is, he visits the iniquity to the third or fourth generations, but when it comes to his mercy and his forgiveness, that's basically kind of passed on for what? A thousand generations. There's the comparison. That is what he's like. That's what he prefers. So again, it could be understood as keeping his steadfast love to a thousand generations. In fact, there's a translation called the Complete Jewish Bible. And it reads this way. Adonai is God, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in grace and truth, showing grace to the thousand generation. It helps us to understand why God is merciful to Israel time after time after time after time after time. The Christian standard says maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. In fact, it tells us this in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9, it says, Now therefore, or know therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant, and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So one last point to bring out about all these things we've talked about, because we mentioned again how, how God would over and over and over again show mercy to Israel. And it's just a great picture of how God deals with us as, you know, because we are his children. And we, and we know that when you read the Old Testament times where it talks about God being provoked to anger. They, they, they just they kept on and kept on provoking him to anger. The Old Testament talks about God being provoked by anger by his people over and over again. But I, I just had never recognized this. And I came across this in the book which said, but not once is God provoked to mercy or love. 
His anger requires provoking. His love and mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. In the New Testament, we learn that as a fallen being, we have to be provoked to love. And we are to provoke each other to love. But we need no provoking to anger, only to love. Again, God is the opposite of that. God is basically letting us know that there is no termination date on his commitment to us. We can't get rid of his grace towards us. We cannot outrun his mercy. We cannot evade his goodness. His heart is set on us. So yes, God has given us an escape clause, a way to escape his discipline because he is loving and kind and gracious and merciful. His heart is full of this that he wants to express towards his children. He does not desire to do a strange work toward us. When it comes to our children, maybe especially when they're young, but not only then, but to our grandchildren, if we're unable to see them for a while, normally what we experience is it's like there's this stored up love in us that, that wants to get out. We want to express it towards them. We want to buy them stuff. We want to see them smile. We want to hear them laugh. We, we, want, we want to spoil them. And at that point, our children, they have to scold us because we're ruining things for them. But it's, it's pent up. It's a small picture of what God is like us. So this God who will discipline us. Paul tells us in Corinthians that this, this weakness and sickness and dying that's going on in the church is the strange act of God. So it's not what he wants to do. What, is, what he wants to do with all of his heart and soul is to pour out his love, grace, and kindness on them. That's the God that we not only come clean to, that is the one that as we make this new way of life, our life of constantly examining ourselves, we're doing that not for this ogre, not for a God with an oversized belly club, not for a God who's following us around with a dark cloud and ready to throw lightning bolts at you because you mess up. A God who is powerful and is stern, but is filled to the brim with love and mercy and kindness. He wants us to confess our sin to Him. He wants us to come clean because it's good for us. He wants us to grasp and understand these things and turn from our sin so He can pour out more of His love and more of His grace to you. That is the God that we worship. That is the God who saved us. That is the God that we live for. That is the God of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we share with others. As you look out, as you watch the news, and you see the riots and the screaming that's going on all over the place, God loves them. They don't know this God like we know this God. They think God is like them, angry and petty and all the rest. But God is not. And the way we treat them, the way we speak with them, we want that to be used by God to manifest to them what God is like. Let's pray. Mm -hmm. 
Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word and for the beautiful picture that is painted for us in both the Old and New Testament. Father, I pray that for all of us here, that you would burn these truths deep into our hearts, that you would cement them deep into our minds, that they would never be removed. We pray that we would meditate on them and that we would be awed by your greatness and by your love. Pray, Lord, with this glimpse that we're given of your mercy, kindness, Father, that we would love you even more. We thank you, Lord, that you have, are willing to pour out into our lives your love and your mercy. We experience the richness of it each and every day. So, Father, we pray that these things would cause us to become ourselves much more merciful and gracious and loving. And to realize that to live that way is to live that way out of strength because we know who we are in Christ and that it is not weakness at all that requires us to live that way. It is strength. Give us the strength that we need. Because, Father, this is a difficult thing, an unnatural thing that you've asked us to do. But we know, Lord, that with your help, power, and spirit, we will be able to live this way and manifest it to others. We thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.